Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Good morning, everyone. From Washington, D.C., Poppy is off this week. Pamela Brown back with me on this fine Wednesday. Let's get started with five things to know for July 12th, 2023. We're going to start off with President Biden and Ukrainian President Zelensky set to make a major announcement about new efforts to bolster Ukraine's long-term military prospects later this morning. The announcement coming as the two meet at the NATO summit in Vilnius. Despite the agreement, however, NATO has declined to offer a clear timeline for Ukraine to join the alliance. And severe weather from coast to coast. Parts of New England are still suffering from devastating floods, while more than 50 million Americans from California to Texas to Florida will face another round of extreme heat. And happening in just a couple of hours, FBI Director Christopher Wray set to testify in what's expected to be, almost certain to be, a contentious hearing before the House Judiciary Committee. Wray will face questions from Republicans who claim the FBI has become politicized. And new concerns after North Korea's latest missile test. The missile flew for more than an hour. A Japanese official warning North Korea now has the technology to strike his country with a nuclear weapon. And will Hollywood actors join writers on the picket line? The actors' union, SAG-AFTRA, and the studios have until midnight tonight Pacific time to reach a new deal, or else a strike will go into effect. CNN This Morning starts right now. Good morning, everybody, and welcome. Pamela, thanks for picking a very heavy news week. I was going to say, I really lucked out on this week. Every single day, live pictures, good events, really consequential moments. It's all because I'm here, Yes, and you're bringing that to the table. Exactly. You and the NATO summit, which we've been keeping an eye on all week, and this is a very consequential day in that summit happening right now. It is the final day of the NATO summit. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is set to meet face-to-face with President Biden and other world leaders in just a few moments as he pleads for more weapons to defeat Russia and an invitation to join that 31-member powerful NATO alliance. Zelensky will be meeting one-on-one with Biden after the group meeting that will get underway in that room you see there that's currently empty. Uh, Leaders are expected to be walking in shortly in just a few moments. Zelensky has been criticizing NATO leaders for not giving a clear timeline of when Ukraine can join the alliance. Here's what he said as he headed into the high-stakes summit this morning. We want to be on the same page with everybody, with all, all the understanding. And for today, what we, what, we, what we hear and understand that we'll have this invitation when security measures will allow. And we are told President Biden and NATO leaders unanimously agreed to a substantial new aid package for Ukraine. And there will be a major announcement from Biden and G7 leaders after the summit wraps up. We have team coverage with correspondents at the summit in Lithuania and on the ground in Ukraine. Alex Markhardt is following reactions in Kyiv. Let's start with Melissa Bell and Vilnia. So, um, Melissa, what can you tell us? 
Well, if yesterday, Pamela, was very much about what President Zelensky will not be walking away from Vilnius with, today is much more about those actual deliverables, and they are fairly substantial. You're looking at a series of bilateral meetings that he's going through this morning, speaking to individual NATO leaders who are pledging one after another substantial military aid packages. There will be that bilateral meeting later on with President Biden. And in terms of what the United States has already pledged, it will be providing as part of its next military aid package, those controversial cluster munitions. Now, that's been welcomed yesterday already by the Ukrainian defense minister saying, uh, Alexei Reznikov, that he believes they could be a game changer on the ground. But perhaps more importantly, what we're going to hear today is something that's being dubbed NATO light. The G7 countries are coming together and they're going to be announcing not just significant new aid packages in a military sense for Kyiv, but perhaps more importantly, uh, more uh, efforts politically, economically, to help with the further integration into the west of Ukraine. And that may be, in terms of the long term, one of the most significant things that, uh, missed, that the president uh, heads back to Kyiv with from this summit, Pamela. Alex, I was struck this morning, uh, our star colleague Betsy Klein, who's over in Vilnius with the president, uh, was watching a, a question and answer session, a NATO public forum earlier today where National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan was speaking. And in one of the questions he took from a Ukrainian anti-corruption activist uh, criticized the decision not to immediately invite Ukraine uh, into NATO in quite caustic terms. Uh, I'm, I'm intrigued. Sullivan's response, I think, was was trying to balance, I think, a very clear reality that we might actually get a window into when President Zelensky and Biden meet later today, a tension within the NATO alliance with Ukraine in this ongoing conflict. Uh, I'm interested on the ground there. Do you hear signs of that? Is there some frustration right now? Yeah, Phil, I think you know very well from covering the White House that Jake Sullivan is, is a very measured guy. And you could see in his response to this activist that he was bristling uh, at this accusation that the U.S. is not doing enough. I think this exchange between the activist and Jake Sullivan is, is essentially redux of what we see uh, play out very publicly between the U.S. and Ukrainian leadership, albeit in a, a more polite and formal way, with Ukraine asking a lot more of the U.S. and NATO than they are are willing to give. Uh, so what we saw Sullivan here responding was uh, what Biden had said earlier is that Ukraine is not ready to join NATO yet because of the ongoing war in Ukraine, and that could draw NATO into a, a war with Russia. But also, very notably, uh, a defensive Sullivan uh, saying that I think the American people deserve a certain level uh, of gratitude for everything uh, that the U.S. has offered Ukraine so far, tens of billions of dollars in dozens of different military aid packages. Uh, so we have seen Zelensky in the past asking more of the U.S. We have seen some of this defensiveness from the U.S. side. And I think Melissa is absolutely right in framing the two days of this summit as yesterday was essentially uh, Ukraine being told what it's not going to get. And it is that big ticket item of not and not getting an imminent invitation uh, to NATO. So, yes, Phil, there is immense frustration uh, here on the ground here in the Ukrainian capital. 
And today is going to be about what Ukraine is getting, both in the short and the long term. So while Ukraine is not going to be getting this immediate invitation to NATO, uh, we are expecting this major announcement from G7 countries, uh, which uh, White House official Amanda Sloat said earlier uh, is essentially going to send two messages, long term support for Ukraine and a warning to Russia. Uh, This is about integrating Ukraine uh, further into the West in terms of politics, in terms of economics, uh, and of course, in terms of the the military. Uh, We are seeing a number of countries offer huge new military aid packages uh, to Ukraine. So as uh, President Zelensky comes back to Kyiv, he's certainly going to come back disappointed for not getting uh, the biggest uh, item on his wish list, but he will be able to say that he got significant deliverables both in the short and the long term. Phil, Pam. Alex Markhorn for us in Kiev, Melissa Belforce uh, at the NATO summit. Thanks so much. And do stay tuned. We're going to be speaking with National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan later this morning in the show about that exchange and about what Alex was detailing here. There's going to be a significant announcement from the G7 leaders uh, later today about long term security assistance. What details that may include? We're going to ask when Jake comes on. And before that, we want to talk about the severe weather in this country. A perfect storm is unfolding across the globe, and that is what one scientist tells CNN. Record heat and flooding have been seen daily all over the world. Tens of millions of Americans have been under heat advisories from California to Florida this week. And South Florida experiencing a heat dome, bringing oppressive triple-digit temperatures and dangerously warming the ocean. Miami has seen 31 consecutive days of heat indexes over 100 degrees. Let's go to meteorologist Derek Van Dam live in Miami. So tell us, what can people in South Florida expect today? They've had quite a week. Yeah, Pamela, it feels like you can literally drink the air here in Miami. But I think what's most impressive about this heat wave is the magnitude and the scope of it. It covers 12 southern U.S. states. It spans over 70 million Americans, and it's only beginning to ramp up now. And it's going to topple records from Florida all the way to California. Take Miami, where I'm located here. Today marks the 32nd consecutive day where heat indices, that's temperature and humidity, feels like over 100 degrees. In Phoenix, you're not sheltered from this heat as well. You've had 12 consecutive days of your actual air temperature above 110. That's your third longest streak. And in Las Vegas, you will likely see your all-time hottest temperature ever recorded later this week. Now, uh, it's just incredible. 70% of the U.S. will experience temperatures over 90 degrees in the coming week. 50 million Americans will experience triple-digit heat here in the next few days. Now, I'm in the thick of it, but this heat is dangerous. I spoke to an expert about it. Have a listen to hear what he said. It's been record-breaking and breaking records day after day after day. So it's above and beyond normal by a lot. It just goes on and on with that, with, with, with the heat index. This is, we've never had a string like this in recorded history. At the very least, it's uncomfortable. Um, at the worst, it's actually deadly. The National Weather Service in Miami had an explicit statement. If you consider yourself in good physical shape and you come outside and do outdoor activities during the peak heating days, it could be dangerous. And if you're looking to cool off in the Atlantic Ocean, we are way past bathtub water. Pam, we are in hot tub territory right now. Yeah, Literally. we are. The ocean. Warm. Temperatures on land, you can't escape it. Derek Van Dam, thank you. Right.
And now over to the Northeast, where more rain is in the forecast for flood-ravaged communities in Vermont. First responders have already pulled dozens of people to safety from the high water streets. They're washed out. Buildings are submerged. Dams nearing capacity. The ground beneath this rail line completely washed out. CNN's Miguel Marquez is live in Montpelier with more. And Miguel, where and what are the concerns for first responders at this hour? Well, right now, this is the cleanup phase. The, the, the rivers have gone back into their banks. They do have capacity now to take more water on if it rains in the days ahead. We won't see the sort of record-breaking rain that they saw over you know, earlier this week, which for here in Montpelier, it was the most rain they'd seen in a, in a single day in the entire history. This is what they're dealing with now. Lots of mud everywhere. So the streets here are going to be closed to any traffic and to uh, cars parking today so they can start cleaning up this mess. Uh, and then, you know, this is Maine and State. This is the main intersection in Montpelier. And this is what it sounds like. It's just the alarms keep going off. I mean, it's a little eerie to hear. And all the businesses here, I mean, they look normal, but... You, uh, bear Pond Books here. The water line came to or just everything is destroyed from that from that level on. So every business along here, they've, some businesses have started to pull out uh, some of the stuff from inside, trying to pump out their basements and trying to get back to normal. But keep in mind, this is one of hundreds of towns across the Green Mountain State that now has to put everything back in order. Back to you guys. A lot of work ahead. Miguel Marquez, great reporting. Thank you. Well, just a couple of hours from now, FBI Director Christopher Wray will face some of his harshest critics on Capitol Hill over claims law enforcement agencies are being weaponized against Republicans. And Donald Trump's legal cases are colliding with his 2024 presidential campaign, how his court fights will impact his political run. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. That is the most beautiful building in the world, the United States Capitol. That's a personal opinion. Spent a lot of time there. Spent a lot of time there. So a couple of people that are sitting around that we're about to introduce. Happening today, the FBI Director Christopher Wray, set to be grilled by some of his harshest critics on Capitol Hill. Now, Republicans on the House Judiciary Committee panel are planning to aggressively question Wray on, quote, the abuse of power in federal agencies. Now, this oversight hearing is his first since Republicans recently threatened to hold the FBI Director in contempt of Congress. CNN's Sarah Murray joins us now. All right, Murray. Um, I'm a little reticent to ask you <laughs> this question, but topics-wise, uh, we've seen a lot of public commentary and bluster from Republicans on this panel specifically. Mm-hmm. What do we expect them to go after Ray on? You know, it's possible you're going to see some more bluster today. Yeah. No Jim Jordan, the Congress? chair. Yeah, exactly. Jim Jordan, the chair of the Judiciary Committee, has made it very clear that the FBI leadership is his number one punching bag. And his chief criticism is that the FBI is too politicized, particularly against conservatives, which is interesting because a lot of the FBI, frankly, is made up of conservatives. But I think we're going to hear about some of these high profile investigations. I think we're going to see Ray hammered over special counsel John Durham's report saying there never should have been a full investigation into Donald Trump's campaign and his ties to Russia. Also likely to hear some of their other complaints, you know, the notion that conservative parents were overly scrutinized for their complaints around school board meetings and that kind of thing. 
I mean, as you would expect, we have a very uh, salty statement from Jerry Nadler, who is the top Democrat on the committee, who's saying, for Republicans, this hearing is little more than performance art. It is an elaborate show designed with only two purposes in mind, to protect Donald Trump from the consequences of his actions and to return him to the White House in the next election. But there's another threat hanging out over here, and it's Phil's favorite. It's the appropriations process. Appropriations. Republicans are, are already threatening to cut back FBI funding. They, they want it to basically be cut back to what is absolutely essential, no politicized investigations, and are also saying, look, we don't want to give you any money for a new FBI headquarters unless you move it to Alabama. Should we get to talk about 302Bs now? No, we oh cannot. Phil right. here is appropriations, and he's like, what? what? <laughs> he's too excited. Show like to other people that are sitting about- with us right now, for the record. <laughs> Murray, stick around. Yes, and those other people are going to join us right now, CNN legal analyst and former federal prosecutor Elliot Williams, CNN congressional correspondent Lauren Fox, and senior congressional correspondent for The Washington Post, Paul Kane. All right, so Lauren, look, the FBI director testifying on Capitol Hill, right? In any other universe, this would be... A big deal, we would, we would expect substance. There are threats facing our nation every day that the FBI director can speak to. But as Sarah just laid out, there's every expectation this is going to devolve into a food fight rather than a hearing of substance. Yeah, and this is an opportunity where lawmakers could ask a series of questions on topics that they might be interested in that might have local implications, that they might be able to get more interesting information about how an investigation is going. They might get more information about how a process is going. Instead, this is really all about politics. And there's a reason that Republicans want to bring him in because they want to create those kinds of viral moments so they can show their conservative base back home that this is the moment that they are defending former President Donald Trump. And that is really what this is about. This is about making that tie back to the base that we are doing everything we can up here in Washington, up here in Congress, to make sure we are protecting from our President Trump. Yeah, you know, having worked both uh, for Congress and in law enforcement, you know, I can say and I do believe that congressional oversight is fundamentally a good thing for stamping out waste and fraud and abuse and helping uh, the Justice Department or the FBI work better. The problem right now is that there is a not silent majority uh, on the House Judiciary Committee, which I testified in front of a couple of months ago, that truly believes that our government is run by a deep state cabal and in cahoots with Pfizer and Google and and all sorts of interests that I think is going to get in the way of of having any sort of productive hearing. And so what you're going to see today uh, are a lot of fireworks and theatrics and not really getting to the bottom of Is the government's money being spent well? Is the FBI being run efficiently? It's all going to be about politics and not really about making government work better. PK, I think think Fox and I have a similar perspective on this when it comes to watching these hearings. You know what members to watch, right, for actual substance. And the Judiciary Committee is a big panel, uh, not necessarily always uh, maybe the most substantive members are, are put to some degree on that panel, Because it's so large, but there are members there that are going to ask good questions, that are going to ask questions that elicit answers that I think we all are sometimes interested in. If you're watching this hearing today, who are you watching? What do you actually want to dig in on? Um, I want to first of all see how Jim Jordan runs a big hearing like this. The best hearings usually would involve almost thinking like an old football coach where they would script the first 20 plays, where you would script the first few people asking questions so that you're organized, so that you're not tripping over one another. You're not asking the Mar-a-Lago question after somebody else just asked a Mar-a-Lago question. Um, And second, there's another party here. It's not just the Republicans. The Democrats 
get to ask almost as many questions. And I want to watch and see how they play the politics of this. They have spent so many years on the defensive with crime and law and order, taking defund the police accusations. So I want to see how Nadler and his side of the aisle, his side of the dais, how they play their questions and whether they want to come out of this looking like the law and order party, which would be a totally upside down inverse world for those of us that have been covering this stuff for a long time. And of course, looming all over this is Donald Trump, right? You're going to have people like Jim Jordan trying to impress Donald Trump, trying to defend him. And Donald Trump, he's got a lot of legal woes he's facing right now. You just had the the Georgia grand jury sworn in looking into um, Donald Trump and um, possible election interference in the 2020 election. We could see charges next month. That could coincide with the August debate, right? And, you know, you have to wonder, how is Trump going to navigate this? It's really uncharted territory. Yeah, I think it's, gonna, it's a real question, you know, for him and his attorneys and for his campaign. We've, we saw it in a court filing, you know, just yesterday, them raising concerns about the classified documents case, saying, you know, we can't possibly go to trial when we're in the middle of an election because we need to be, you know, focused on running for president. And in that court document, he also points out all of his other legal responsibilities, you know, the indictment that was going on in New York, the civil case involving E. Jean Carroll. And that's all before we get a potential indictment in Georgia and while we wait to see what special counsel Jack Smith does on the January 6th probe. I think it is going to be a real challenge. You could envision Donald Trump showing up in court and then just hopping on his plane and flying to a nearby swing state and doing a rally that night. But it's obviously not an ideal position to be in for a candidate. Yeah. Elliot, can I ask you, the the question I had yesterday when uh, the Trump legal team uh, filed in the, the documents case, right. saying this needs to be delayed. Uh, there's, he's in the middle of a campaign. This is politics. We can't do this in the middle of a presidential campaign. There's not a lot of precedent for this as a lawyer. And because of that, I think as opposed to just being like, oh, that's absurd, or oh, that's just a political move right there. The legal yeah. theory here, is there one, and what are they trying to flush yeah, out? Two things can be totally true here, Phil, which is that, number one, he's actually trying to delay this trial and push it off into the future as far as possible. But two, he's a criminal defendant who is entitled to a trial at a time that is legally appropriate and sound for him. And it's really dangerous for prosecutors and the court to sort of step in the way of that. Now, the uh, prosecutors were quite clear in their filings that, look— this trial can be had in a couple of months or, you know, several months. Number two, the fact that there's a presidential campaign coming is irrelevant. Number three, you can always pick a, a jury who can assess even a famous defendant fairly. So he's pushing his arguments very far, but you really don't want to run the risk of doing something that jeopardizes that fair trial question and getting the case tossed out on appeal if he actually ends up getting convicted down the road. You can't, you can't both sides of this, Elliot. Oh, I'm, I'm going to both sides. I need definitive, definitive, definitive answers. Like PK scripting 20 plays for the Delaware Blue Hens this fall. Oh, if only. If only. <laughs> all right. Thank you. I appreciate you waking up early to be with us. Well, overnight, Iowa Republicans passing a bill banning most abortions after six weeks. And Chinese hackers breached U.S. government email accounts, and it went undetected for a month. Why did it take so long? We'll get to that ahead. Taking a live look here at the Iowa State House in Des Moines, where late last night the Republican-led legislature passed a ban on most abortions as early as six weeks into pregnancy. It was during a special session called by Republican Governor Kim Reynolds to address the issue specifically. Demonstrators representing both sides of the abortion rights debate packed the State House. A reporter for the Des Moines Register caught a tense moment between two of the demonstrators. You see, 
that had to be broken up by a state trooper. Now, the bill excludes exceptions for miscarriages when the life of the pregnant woman is threatened and fetal abnormalities that would result in death. There are also exceptions for rape reported within 45 days and incest reported within 140 days. Governor Reynolds says she intends to sign the bill Friday, at which point the ban would immediately go into effect. This will put Iowa with a growing list of states limiting or outright banning the procedure. Well, also this morning, new overnight, North Korea firing a long-range intercontinental ballistic missile off its east coast just days after Pyongyang threatened to shoot down U.S. reconnaissance plants. It landed between the Korean Peninsula and Japan. CNN's Mark Stewart joins us live from Tokyo. Mark, what do we know? Hi, Phil. Good to see you. Uh, for a good part of the morning, military forces here in Japan and South Korea were on alert monitoring this missile launch. This missile was in the air for 74 minutes. This time duration viewed by experts as significant, seen as a big deal. We should also point out that this missile was launched at a very specific angle where it would have a very short flight. Again, only 74 minutes. However, this is a missile that has the potential of crossing the ocean, uh, landing in other continents, and that is why there is so much attention to what happened over the last uh, 12 hours here in the Pacific uh, region, at least. Yeah, the time duration was what struck me, and also when this actually happened. Obviously, we've been talking all week about the world leaders meeting at NATO. We've just learned that South Korea's president will be holding an emergency meeting there over this latest launch. What are the expectations from that? Right. Well, let me just say this. And as you well know from spending time in the region during the G7, North Korea craves attention. And when you have a gathering such as the NATO summit, something like this is ripe to happen. As far as the South Korean meeting, uh, it is believed that it has included uh, defense ministers, other top officials. South Korea has made comments today saying that there will be consequences. As far as what happens next, that's still ambiguous. I can tell you, though, having spent time in the region, I wouldn't say that people are necessarily alarmed at this point, even though South Korea is saying there could be some consequences. I think at this point, this is just a general awareness that North Korea continues to move things step by step further. Yeah, it's like an unsettling new normal to some degree. Mark Stewart, great reporting. Thanks. Well, new this morning, Chinese hackers have breached email accounts at two dozen U.S. organizations, including some U.S. government agencies. That's according to the White House and Microsoft. The National Security Council issuing a statement saying last month, U.S. government safeguards identified an intrusion in Microsoft's cloud security, which affected unclassified systems. Officials immediately contacted Microsoft to find the source and vulnerability in their cloud service. Microsoft says the hacking began a month before the breach was detected and that the hackers used a stolen sign-in key. The full scope of the hack is still being investigated. And the Washington Post reports that accounts from the Pentagon, intelligence community, and military did not appear to be affected. So on that note, uh, that's good news. But it'll be interesting to hear if, if Ray, the FBI director, is asked about this today. We talked about what yeah. substantive questions could actually be asked. This be is one. one of those substantive yeah. questions. And I think when you talk to National Security Council officials, intelligence officials, with all of the things that are going on in the world, cyber and hacking threats is always kind of this pervasive issue that they're keeping a very close eye on and very concerned yeah. about. Yeah. If you ask them what keeps you up at night, it's this. Yes. Yeah, no question about it. All right, Senator Tommy Tuberville is changing his tune. It was quite a journey he was on yesterday. Now he says white nationalists 
a racist, after previously refusing to denounce them, the backlash he's getting from both sides of the aisle. And we're gonna take you live to space and speak with a NASA astronaut who has been living on the ISS for four months. I am so looking forward to this segment. What he's doing up there? We got so many questions for him. Stay with us. You are looking at live images from the NATO summit in Lithuania, well underway there. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky just finished speaking. He seems to be softening some of his frustrated language, saying the results of the summit are, quote, good, but that receiving an invitation to join the alliance would be the ideal. And we have learned that President Biden and NATO leaders unanimously agreed to a substantial new aid package for Ukraine. And there will be a major announcement from Biden and G7 leaders after the summit wraps. New this morning, also the Kremlin warning against providing security guarantees to Ukraine, saying such actions could lead to extremely negative consequences. And we also just learned the head of Russia's Foreign Intelligence Service held a phone call with CIA Director William Burns at the end of June. That's according to Russian state media. In a few hours, Zelensky will meet face to face with President Biden. We'll bring that to you live. But safe to say there is no shortage of news this morning. Yes. We bring it. Including um, the journey that we all went on with uh, the senior senator from Alabama yesterday, Tommy Tuberville. He's now changing his tune. I'm totally against racism. And if the Democrats want to say that white nationalists are racist, I'm totally against that too. But that's not a Democratic definition. The definition of a white nationalist is Well, that's your definition. My definition is is racism bad. To be clear, this is a journey that I don't think any of us wanted to be on. Correct. Uh, the senator did finally relent and say that white nationalists are indeed racist. That was a 180-degree turn from what he told CNN's Caitlin Collins on Monday night. My opinion of a white nationalist, if somebody wants to call him white nationalist, to me is an American. It's an American. Let's bring back Elliot Williams and Lauren Fox. And, and Lauren... What was striking to me yesterday is it felt like the, the days when you and I were on, in the halls together during the Trump administration where every single day you would just track down Republicans and ask them about Trump's latest tweet. They never wanted to talk about it. They were infuriated that it was getting in the way of whatever policy issue they wanted to be talking about. This time it wasn't the former president. It was one of the members of their conference. Right. And you can expect that when there's a president that you are supposed to be supporting, it's one thing. And when it's just a fellow rank and file member who you sit with in lunch, it's a very different thing. I knew that this was starting to turn yesterday when I talked to Senator John Thune, the Republican whip, who is usually very honest and candid, even though he's very polite in his delivery, about how he thought that Tommy Tuberville was really going nowhere with this discussion and said repeatedly he had no idea what Tommy Tuberville was trying to say, but that he wanted to make it very explicit that there was no room for white nationalists in the Republican Party or in the military, which is where this all started from. I think that one of the things that became clear to me was that while Republican leadership doesn't lean on members to change their stance, it was very clear that one after another Republican yesterday in the halls was making it clear that this was not a conversation they wanted to be having. This was not a conversation that they thought helped the Republican Party, and they wanted to quell it as quickly as possible. Do you know, just to follow up on that, if any of them actually spoke directly, though, to Tupperville and say, like, 
cut it out. Let's. I was told it did not come up in the Republican lunch yesterday. That doesn't mean that there weren't any private conversations that we don't know about, but it did not come up as like a Republican-wide discussion in the lunch. Uh, Elliot, if if, if we could step back to some degree, and and I think, you know, Jake Tapper made the point when we were talking to him yesterday that you need to contextualize Tuberville's comments because he has a history, not just on this specific issue, which he's been talking about for some reason I can't quite figure out now for a couple of months, but also on the campaign trail last year made some comments uh, that were immediately kind of refuted by by Republicans and who are very uncomfortable with the the racist tone of them. Um, But but. From a bigger picture perspective, this isn't happening in a vacuum. Right. Unlike someone's right to a fair trial, Phil, this is not something I'm going to both sides. And look, you know, let's define what white nationalism is. And it's the belief in a white ethnostate in America. The belief that race mixing itself threatens the United States of America and that there ought to be a white majority in America. Now, none of those views are actually illegal to have. And maybe that's the point that Senator Tuberville was trying to do, you know, people's beliefs. But those are toxic views in a civil society. And more to the point, if you notice, late, late in the interview with Caitlin, he says, it's right here, if you're going to do away with most white people, then we're going to have problems. And I, I'm genuinely curious as to what audience he's speaking to there. If there is a silent majority of whites in America who truly are threatened by the idea of race mixing or a non-white majority, that's what he seemed to be saying. Now, he might he brought up all this stuff about identity politics and it's a slur and people are being called racist when they're not, and you can have a debate or discussion about that. But, but he really did seem to be tapping into or thinking he was tapping into something and speaking for a constituency in America that's very frightening if it does exist. Yeah, like, you know, brings to mind the Great Replacement Theory, things like that, tapping into that. You know, Pat Buchanan back in, remember, who ran for president, uh, back in 2000, wrote a book called The Death of the West and uh, sort of presaging this idea that whites were being replaced in America. And And to some extent, it seemed that Tum- Senator Tuberville was tapping into a little bit of that as well, this replacement and this idea. Um, but again, the, 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 the most frightening thing is I think he felt that he was speaking for all or most white people, and that's not good. Bucks, we got to go, but, but I do want to ask you, the dynamics within the Republican conference, um, you saw the public comments from McConnell, from Thune, which, again, to your point, seemed very intentional. Can somebody pull him aside and say, like, dude, what are you doing right now? Or is that just not his relationship within that conference? Well, it's not the leadership style necessarily to do that. But Roger Wicker, who is the top Republican on the Armed Services Committee, he said that he does think at some point that the fever is going to break on this issue of these holds. But he told me yesterday he did sit by Tommy Tuberville in lunch. He said they are not there yet in terms of some kind of resolution. But a few interesting things have happened this week, including the fact Wicker sat by him yesterday. He met with Jack Reed, the top Democrat, on the Armed Services Committee on Monday, there's no resolution yet, but NDA is coming. That may be an opportunity, potential off-ramp. We'll be watching. All right, we'll have to keep well. watching for sure. Elliot Williams, Lauren Fox, thanks, guys. Well, we have a CNN exclusive coming up that I've been working on along with my team on the investigative unit. It's an investigation into sexual abuse at the Coast Guard Academy and the findings that were kept secret for so long, what survivors are not telling us, and how lawmakers are reacting to the damning reports of new information ahead. This episode is probably the most shameful and disgraceful incident of cover-up of sexual assault that I have seen in the United States military ever. More CNN This Morning to come after the break.
Well, this week, the head of the Coast Guard will face questions on Capitol Hill about a damning report into sexual abuse at the Coast Guard Academy that was kept secret for years, only unveiled because of an exclusive CNN investigation. Some survivors tell CNN they've been wanting accountability for decades. New questions about the secret damning report called Operation Failed Anchor, which revealed a decades-long history of substantiated sexual abuse, including rapes, at the Coast Guard Academy, according to documents viewed exclusively by CNN. The assaults were treated as minor misconduct by Coast Guard Command and were usually covered up. Victims were often punished. The investigation ran from 2014 to 2019, but only reviewed sexual assault from the late 80s to 2006, leaving a major gap in its findings. The Coast Guard has failed the victims, and the worst part is, is the culture and the environment that they still have at the academy is allowing this behavior to continue. Carrie Carwin says she was sexually assaulted in 1995 and even wrote about the incident in her journal at the time, saying a football player came to her room quote, bit my neck and felt up my chest. Luckily, I got away and he left, but he said he was going to come back and finish what he started. And I was terrified. This guy was bigger than me. He was stronger than me. And I didn't have a roommate and I didn't know how to protect myself. She reported her attack at the time, but the Coast Guard Academy only gave him demerits and assigned him to write an essay. That same cadet would be accused of multiple other assaults, including rape, according to records viewed by CNN. We are not being attacked by somebody who's a complete stranger that we never see again. You're repeatedly getting traumatized by this individual because you're stuck in the environment with them. Carwin says she was hoping for change when the Coast Guard reopened her case and dozens of others with Operation Failed Anchor, but that didn't happen. There was no, you know, here's what the results were and this is what we're doing about it and this is the Coast Guard's way forward. Instead, Coast Guard officials kept the problem secret for years. A source telling CNN the report was, quote, very centrally controlled, similar to how a classified report would be treated. The Coast Guard only briefed Congress last month after CNN started asking questions. Now senators are demanding answers. We are looking for accountability. We want to know what steps have been taken to make sure this never happens again. This episode is probably the most shameful and disgraceful incident of cover-up of sexual assault that I have seen in the United States military ever. Of the dozens of old sexual assault cases examined, only one person was ever prosecuted. The charge against him was dismissed when a court ruled the statute of limitations had run out. Many of the alleged perpetrators graduated from the academy and went on to high-ranking positions in the Coast Guard or other branches of the military. The man Carrie Carwin says assaulted her ended up retiring from the Coast Guard with full benefits. The victims don't feel like the Coast Guard handled their situation well. Their attackers have gone on to have careers, retired with benefits, and yet the victims have never stopped suffering. CNN has spoken to more than a dozen former cadets who say they were assaulted over the years, some more recently. We need to talk about it. This woman, who says she was raped three times, just graduated from the Coast Guard Academy last year. So you have to wonder if they had released this report, if they had done more to crack down on sexual assault, how your experience would have been different. You know, I often find myself wondering what my future would have been like. Time and time again, the academy and the institution don't protect their, their people. It did nothing to save me when I was asking for help, and it's devastating. 
Well, the head of the Coast Guard, Admiral Linda Fagan, will testify on Capitol Hill tomorrow. A Coast Guard spokesperson told CNN that most of the historical cases couldn't be prosecuted because they had to go by the law at the time of the offense. And in the 90s, the court martial definition of rape was very narrow. Clearly, a lot has changed since then, um, but still really disturbing. And I spoke to a congressional source yesterday who said lawmakers are really looking at ways to to hold the Coast Guard accountable. Like, you know, there's going to be an appropriations bill coming out for the Coast Guard or DHS, I should say. They're looking at ways to uh, guarantee transparency moving forward. So we'll have to see what happens. Great. Very important work. You and your team, Pam. All right. Ukrainian President Zelensky attending the final day of the NATO summit and seeking assurances that his nation can one day join that alliance. We're going to be live on the ground coming up next. The National League All-Star Game losing streak, it's now over, thanks to one swing of the bat from a very unlikely hero. 32-year-old Rockies catcher Elias Diaz had never been to the Midsummer Classic after nine seasons in the majors. That didn't phase him. What you just watched there, a big, big home run in the eighth inning, down by one, facing one of the best relievers in the game, Felix Batista of the Orioles. Diaz crushed the ball deep into the left field stands. It was a two-run shot, one that was enough to earn him MVP honors after the game. He got emotional talking about his mother being there to see it happen. That was incredibly special for me, you know, to have her here. A lot of emotions with everything that we've been through, all the sacrifices that she made for me. It was really special to have her here for me. A 3-2 win is the NL's first All-Star game win since 2012 and just their fourth in the last 26 years. CNN This Morning continues right now. President Biden and Ukrainian President Zelensky are about to meet after a very public disagreement over when and how Ukraine can enter NATO. NATO alliance members very wary of tying themselves to any specific timetable. Zelensky calling the decision, quote, unprecedented and absurd. President Biden is hoping to focus on what the U.S. can offer Ukraine in the here and now and also down the road. No way, bro. Thousands of businesses and homes underwater. We're not out of the woods. This is nowhere near over. Flooding only the beginning. Extreme heat baking other parts of the country. 115 degrees won't be out of the question. Temperatures just continue to go up. The senator from Alabama is wrong, wrong, wrong. After 24 hours of backlash, Republican Senator Tommy Tuberville finally condemning white nationalists. So do you believe that white nationalists are racist? Yes. If that's what race is, yes. White supremacy is simply unacceptable in the military and in our whole country. Under pressure, he moved, and I guess it's better than nothing. More than 200 law enforcement officers have joined an intensifying manhunt for prison escapee Michael Charles Burham. Authorities say they found small stockpiles or campsites they believe are associated with him. I do believe he's a dangerous individual and people need to be alert to that. At the beginning of the tournament, if someone would tell me that I would be in the semifinal and beating world number one, I would, you know, just say that they are crazy. Just happy I could bring a little happiness to, to people of Ukraine. 
Well, good Wednesday morning, everyone. A lot of news going on, but I think this is an important day for the NATO summit because much of this summit up to this point has been about what Ukraine hasn't been able to get. This is going to be a, a day of a lot of substance on what they will be receiving from that coalition. Yeah, it's really been building to, to this day. I mean, really, no shortage of news on this Wednesday morning, as has been the case all week. And the final day of a critical NATO summit is underway right now as the war rages on in Ukraine. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky meeting face-to-face -face with President Biden and other world leaders as he pleads for more weapons and an invitation to join the NATO alliance. He has been openly frustrated with NATO for not giving a clear timeline of when Ukraine can become a member. Well, just moments ago in a news conference with NATO Secretary General, General Jens Stoltenberg, Zelensky thanked the allies for pledging new weapons packages. He seemed to soften his tone over NATO membership but he did not relent. I would like to have a success on this summit for everyone, for our soldiers, for our citizens, for our children, for everyone. We can state that the results of the summit are good, but should we receive an invitation, they would be the, the optimum. Zelensky is set to meet one-on-one -on -one with President Biden next hour after the group meeting with NATO leaders wraps. Melissa Bell is live in Vilnius. And Melissa, we're told Biden and NATO leaders have agreed to send a significant new aid package to Ukraine. What details do we have at this point? That's right. We're beginning to hear, Phil, from individual member states about their particular commitments, many of them very substantial, many of them including weaponry that some of these countries had been reluctant to provide uh, so far. And what you just heard now in that press conference that was just held between uh, Jen Stoltenberg and President Zelensky, you're quite right. No relent from President Zelensky on the message that whilst these aid packages are important, they are not the same as NATO membership with that frustration behind his words and the frustration quite well hidden, but there nonetheless in the voice of Jen Stoltenberg, and we've seen this over the last couple of the days uh, that we've been here saying, look, what you have got, what you are getting, what you will get is substantial. And it doesn't just include the military aid, the equipment, the weaponry, which continues uh, to be raised up a notch. And I'm thinking here of the F-16s, for instance, that we've learned here that 11 countries are going to be training Ukrainian pilots on with Ukrainians believe the possibility that the F-16s will be delivered in time to be operational on the battlefields of Ukraine by uh, March of 2024. So substantial gains in terms of Ukrainians' ability to wage their war. Uh, but it is... Jen Stoltenberg explained much more also about the political guarantees that are coming, the fact that we are here now as equals and soon to be allies in order that this kind of war can never be waged again. Yeah, clearly a pathway going forward when that actually will take place. So still an open question. Melissa Bell, thanks so much. And the face-to-face -face between Presidents Biden and Zelensky is no doubt a sign of unity. But earlier today, U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan faced a contentious back and forth with a Ukrainian activist. Uh, Jake, please advise me, what should I tell my son? That President Biden and NATO didn't invite Ukraine to NATO because he's afraid of Russia? Afraid of Russia losing? Afraid of Ukraine winning? Or... There are back-channel communications with Kremlin, which is terrorist organization, to reach the Minsk Three deal. 
Should I prepare my son to be a soldier and fight Russians when he will be 18 years and seven years? Certain insinuations or implications inherent in your question, which are not founded, get checked at the door so that we can talk to one another in goodwill, in good faith. Uh, and, you know, there has been a lot of conspiracy theorizing that simply is not based on any reality whatsoever. And also, I would just say the American people have sought in watching and wanting to stand in solidarity uh, with the brave and courageous people of Ukraine to step up and deliver. And I think the American people do deserve a degree of gratitude. Well, CNN political and national security analyst David Sanger joins us now live from the summit in Lithuania. David, I'd like to get your reaction there uh, with the Ukrainian activist and Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor to President Biden. You heard a little touch of defensiveness there uh, from Jake Sullivan. Uh, you did. And I think what you're hearing here in public is a little bit of at least the tenor of the conversation that has taken place back and forth between the Ukrainian leadership, including President Zelensky, and uh, President uh, Biden and his staff. You know, early on in that relationship, Mr. Zelensky would come to the meetings with President Biden with sort of a shopping list of what it was he needed. But as the war has gone on, it's become clear that what Zelensky really wants, and as you were discussing earlier, is to be in NATO so that all of the NATO countries, all 32 once Sweden is in, are committed to um, coming to the defense of Ukraine with their own troops, if need be, um, in the commitments that all NATO members make to each other. And the fact of the matter is, no one was really going to be prepared to let Ukraine in in the middle of a war, because as President Biden has frequently said, that would then put us in direct combat with the Russians. And in President Biden's view, that's the way on to World War III. So that's what he's been trying to avoid. And you've just, this has been bubbling beneath the surface, but you're just seeing it come out in public now. David, I think it's a great point. I, I want to get you to expand on this a little bit, because uh, in covering this White House, this administration over the course of the entirety of this war, there is the kind of public posture and how they uh, interact with or discuss the relationship with Zelensky and his team. And I think there's the behind the scenes. And you see the tension spill out into public at times, but you also see, you know, when Zelensky seemed to back off a little bit uh, in that press conference with Stoltenberg, you saw that kind of wry grin on his face when he made clear we would really like a NATO invitation, which was the similar face he made when he was talking about getting more Patriot missile systems when he was at the White House visiting President Biden. And that, that back and forth, that dynamic yeah. and what we don't see publicly, what, what more do you know about that? Well, this tension, as I said before, has been around for a long time. I think there is a little bit of, of concern within the White House, and you heard it in Jake Sullivan's comments, that they feel like the Ukrainians aren't grateful enough for what has been a pretty remarkable amount of arms, intelligence, training that the U.S. and the NATO allies have given, far more than we would have all predicted at the beginning of this war, and certainly far more than Vladimir Putin predicted. But if you're the Ukrainians, you know, you're fighting for your survival and you know that this war is not going to just go away. We're 500 days in, which is 497 days more than Putin thought this was going to last. And the other thing that's going on here is that 
we are likely to see this war go on either at high levels or low levels for some long time to come. And that's why the most interesting thing that's happening here is what isn't happening. There has been no discussion so far of opening peace negotiations, ceasefire negotiations. No one's ready for that because they want to see if the counteroffensive can work. And so it's been a pretty remarkable absence, you know, a year and a half into this war, uh, that we don't have any discussion underway of what the end game is. That, that's And that's one of the key questions, right? It's, it's such a good point because behind the scenes, I think members of NATO are talking about what it would take to start to set up that construct. But Ukraine has made clear they want to be involved and aren't ready for it yet. Um, that's such a good point, David. I hadn't even been thinking about that. That I assumed at this point these discussions would be live mm-hmm. and you haven't heard a word about it. David Sanger, uh, great, to, great to see you not, as always, my friend. Word. Thank you. All right, well, coming up later this hour, we're going to speak with National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan on Ukraine's future in NATO, just as President Biden is set to meet with President Zelensky. And there is no escape as a perfect storm unfolds across the planet. That's what one scientist tells CNN. Record-breaking heat and flooding have been seen all over the globe daily. Tens of millions of Americans are seeing expanding heat alerts from Southern California to Florida this week. Arizona is currently experiencing dangerous triple-digit temperatures, Phoenix has seen 12 consecutive days with a high over 110 degrees. So let's bring in Zenith Lucy Kavanaugh joining us now live from Scottsdale, Arizona. Lucy, woo, it is still early this morning, but the temperatures are up. What does 110 Fahrenheit feel like? Well, Pam, I can tell you from yesterday when we were out shooting, and it is brutal. The dehydration, the exhaustion hit you really fast. The sun's obviously not up yet, so it's probably the most tolerable part of the day, but we are expecting temperatures of 112 degrees later today, with the mercury expected to soar past 118 by this weekend. Scorching summers may be the norm for Arizona's desert cities, but the brutal heat wave engulfing Phoenix and much of the American Southwest could be the worst on record. Cities sizzling under triple-digit temperatures with no break in sight. This heat wave that we're experiencing right now can be fatal. Firefighters are seeing a jump in calls related to heat sickness. You should absolutely be leery of extreme heat like this for extended days, and that's what worries us, is the long periods of time where we just don't seem to get any relief. At the Phoenix Zoo, relief for hippos and elephants came in the form of cold showers, other animals cooling down with frozen treats. Humans, however, are being urged to stay inside. Those who have to work outdoors are taking extra precautions. Where is our access to hydration? Where is our access to shade? When are we planning to take breaks? Heat is often an invisible killer. Last year, Maricopa County recorded 425 heat-related deaths, with most of the victims people experiencing homelessness and the elderly. As one of America's hottest cities, Phoenix created a first-in-the-nation city office dedicated to heat. Heat is a really serious public health hazard. We don't talk about it as seriously as we should all across the United States. To beat the extreme temperatures, the city has opened hundreds of cooling centers and water stations. It's life-saving. I mean, people are not used to this kind of thing for this many days in a row. We have seen, we have seen episodes like this from time to time, but this is one that's, uh, that's been extreme even by Phoenix standards. A refuge that for some could mean the difference between life and death. What would it mean for you if you didn't have a place like this to go? It'd be death. I mean, you can't last very long out there. And- most places to go indoors, you have to be able to spend money, you know, and may not have that option. 
You heard Derek there. It's so difficult for the city's most vulnerable population. And look, uh, this area is used to hot temperatures. Phoenix is used to 110 degree weather. What's unusual is just how long this heat wave stretch is. 12 consecutive days of over 110 degrees. And if this continues, oh, they need another seven days to break the all time record. Pam? Mm. Try to stay cool while you're there. Lucy Kavanaugh, as hard as that is, thank you so much. Well, new pushback for Ron DeSantis' digital war room, why some Republicans are expressing concern over the Florida governor's online narrative. We have some new reporting just ahead. And Donald Trump's Republican rivals are reacting to his request for a delay in his classified documents trial. That's coming up next, too. Stay with us. One of Donald Trump's 2024 rivals is weighing in on the former president's push to postpone his trial in the classified documents case. Our very own Caitlin Collins asked former Vice President Mike Pence about Trump's legal move and whether he thinks it would be fair for voters to have to cast their vote before the case goes to trial. The allegations in that indictment are serious. I don't ever want to diminish uh, the seriousness of handling the classified materials of this country. But, but at the end of the day, I, I want to let that process work. I'll let the president have his day in court, uh, make his defense. And I'll, I'll, trust, uh, I'll trust the court and the judges to make the right call on when and where that happens. Joining us now, CNN political correspondent Sarah Murray, CNN legal analyst and former federal prosecutor Elliot Williams and Semaphore politics reporter Shelby Talcott. Thank you all for being here. Um, so, Sarah, it, as Trump typically does, right, he likes to take all the oxygen in the room and he's doing that, right, with all these legal cases, this question of whether the trial should should come before the election or after the election. I mean, this it looks like this is going to continue to play a bigger and bigger role and the discourse among these Republican candidates. Well, yeah, I mean, I think if you're Donald Trump, the silver lining, I guess, to getting indicted and maybe indicted again is that you are in the news cycle a lot. People are talking about you. He's obviously used it uh, to his advantage when it comes to fundraising. And, you know, I think the other thing is when we see people like Mike Pence who are so cautious and so unwilling to criticize him, you have to wonder if you're Donald Trump, I mean, what is the real downside for this when it comes to the rest of the Republican field? I mean, he knows... Basically, everyone else in this race is trying to court the same Republican base that is a huge fan of Donald Trump at this yeah. point. And so we're not seeing a lot of sharp Ron DeSantis criticism. isn't going after him. Right, exactly. I mean, he's the biggest opponent right now. I just appreciate our eternal optimist, Sarah Murray, always finding the glass half full, no matter always. the issue or the person. If you're going to get indicted, I guess you should raise a lot of money off of it. Is that the lesson? And by the way, it's true. Yeah. Like, yeah, no, it's no, actually no, it's, happening. It's true and it's effective. Let's go half empty. So let's hear it. Let's go half right, empty. Let's do it. Um, <laughs> I... I I'm not ready for a half-empty question. I'm also an optimist, okay. Elliot. Right. I do have a technical question, though, yeah, which yeah. is why I brought you on. Um, this is why you paid all that money for law school, solely for this question. Solely for you, Phil, um, for you. There was a lot of attention paid to Eileen Cannon, who was the yeah. judge in the, the classified documents case. Um, and I think I was a, always a little bit reticent to, to draw conclusions on any past cases or who nominated her or any of those types of things, because you just don't know in a situation like this. However, the, call, the request to delay uh, with kind of an ambiguous timeline given the campaign and the election. Um, this, this rests on her to some degree, right? It absolutely does. And I would second your view. You just don't know what any judge appointed by a Democrat, appointed by a Republican is going to do. You can look at their past rulings a little bit, but sometimes they're unpredictable. They live in their own worlds. Um, but it's really up to the judge. Now, the judge has full discretion over when to set the trial. She ought to set it at a reasonable time to give the parties, and particularly the defendants, 
time to prepare. Now, that, that will certainly be months ahead in the future. Now, if she really issues a clunker and just does something that is just outside the bounds of law, the Justice Department could move to have her removed from the case. And based on those past rulings, they could also say, this judge really isn't up to the task. But that's a big stretch. Really, federal judges have a lot of leeway and latitude when it comes to scheduling. And is there, like, precedent here? This is, again, kind of a technical thing, but what is a judge looking at when they decide a timeline? Well, I, number one, the complexity of the case and just looking at past classified documents cases, not even involving presidents of the United States, they take a long time to get to trial. Right. Even rinky-dink little trials can take three or four months. So this whole idea, even of the Justice Department saying that they can get this to trial this December, is really, really ambitious. So it's it's probably going to be bumped to next year, if not at some point beyond. And that's not the judge engaging in silliness. It just takes a long time to try a classified case. Yeah. Uh, Shelby, I want to bring you in because you have some new reporting about the uh, so-called DeSantis War Room, the digital operation that is behind some of the controversial ads we've seen. What have you learned? I think the big question behind the digital operation in light of these controversies, they had the AI uh, earlier this month, and then they had the Pride video that they pushed out, was are they on the same page as DeSantis himself? Because they are generating these, you know, by and large, negative headlines. And the answer is yes, they are. And DeSantis in particular is an operator who is very in tune with his campaign. He's not going to let a whole faction of of his team run rogue and have these messages that are not in line with, with what he believes. And so the idea behind the political, the online operation is simply that they're sending out the same message as Ron DeSantis, but in a more aggressive way, and they're targeting the kind of harder right, more online supporters and allowing DeSantis to then go on the ground and talk to these less online, more everyday Iowa, New Hampshire voters who might be turned off by that aggressive messaging. And they're comfortable with it right now? 100%, yeah. Interesting. That's going to be interesting to watch play out. All right. Sarah, Shelby, Elliot, thanks, guys. We appreciate it. Well, new this morning, NASA is marking the James Webb Telescope's first year in space by releasing this incredible picture. Look at this. NASA says it is the nearest star-forming region to Earth. And ahead, we're going to literally take you out of this world. Astronaut Stephen Bowen is currently living and working on the International Space Station. I can't wait to talk to him. So many questions. He's going to join us live up next. And what's the first thing you do after you knock out the world's number one tennis player? What do you do in the next day and a half to prepare for a Wimbledon semi-final? Well, first of all, I'm going to have a beer, probably. (laughs) More CNN This Morning to come after the break. I have been literally so excited all morning about this segment. Like, I feel like a kid in a candy store. All right. So first, he helped build it. Now he is actually living there. Since March, NASA astronaut Stephen Bowen has been living and working at the International Space Station. He was an integral member of the crew that helped expand the ISS in 2008, adding a new bathroom, kitchen, bedrooms, an exercise machine, and water recycling system. And joining us now approximately 250 miles above Earth, and his home away from home, NASA astronaut and flight engineer Stephen Bowen 
live from the International Space Station. Uh, Stephen, great to see you. I, I preferred the mic to be floating rather yeah, than was, holding it, cool. but maybe we'll see that as a, as a little, um, you know, gimmick during the conversation. But I'm wondering, first of all, like, what is your day-to-day -day like on the International Space Station? Does it ever just feel like you're adjusted to it, like it feels like normal? Yeah, it, it takes a while when you first get here. And uh, as you said, I'd been here before, but I'd only been here for very short periods of time. So in a shuttle mission, you're only here for a couple of weeks. You kind of just worked your way through. Up here now, when you're up here for six months, it takes a significant amount of time, probably about five, six weeks before it feels normal. And then even then you're still uh, adjusting and adjusting. I'll probably be adjusting till the day I leave. Uh, and it's it's uh, amazing. You're very busy every single day. You basically work from 7:30 to 7:30 uh, GMT time. Uh, so this is about midday for us. You know, Stephen, you, you talk about the, the 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 long work days. Part of that has been spacewalks. I, I want to show some video of you on a spacewalk. Um, frankly, this is absolutely terrifying to me. Mm -hmm. uh, the idea of a spacewalk, but I've always been intrigued. Kind of the the process. How often do you do them? You know, you spend several hours out there. Uh, how do you get out there? How do you get back in? Walk people through that. Yeah, I mean, obviously the process actually begins months and even years ahead of time, our training, but also the development of the procedures and the, the ground team coordination and getting all the systems and equipment ready. Uh, and then we do maintenance on board on the suits uh, to get them ready. So it really, it takes a, a long process just to get to that morning of EVA. Uh, nowadays, when you get up in the morning uh, for an EVA, you start about normal time. But then you work continuously for the first six hours or so before you even get out the door uh, to start your spacewalk. Uh, it takes that long to get your body adjusted and get the suits configured and everything ready to go so that they, you can go out and execute the plan. And then obviously the coordination during the spacewalk is just uh, beautiful choreography, actually. It, it's amazing uh, to, to see the whole process and the, the huge team that comes together to get a spacewalk done. And that's one reason you don't do it all very often. You have had such a fascinating career. You were a submariner, you're an astronaut, so you've, you've been, you've gone to the depths of the ocean, here you are in space. I'm wondering what your views are on climate change given your, your perspective, right? I mean, the weather from space, it might look beautiful, but of course we can't say the same down here. I mean, we've been talking about this all morning long. We've had catastrophic flooding, we've had extreme heat, wildfires in Canada. What perspective do you have from up there on the impacts of climate change and how we as citizens of the planet should respond to this challenge? I think the, the biggest realization is that we live on a dynamic Earth. I mean, it's it's only recently, even in the past century, that people have started to realize, you know, the impact that we all have, the impact that uh, everything that we do has on the planet. and. Uh, that dynamic sense, I think, is really what we're coming to grips with uh, as we look out, whether it be in the ocean and uh, during my time in uh, submarines, you know, we were looking at uh, so the, the northern reaches and uh, Arctic and Arctic ice. And uh, now even during our uh, increment, looking at the uh, wildfires in Canada, that was impressive to see as we flew over, uh, well, Ohio, 
the Great Lakes, New York, uh, up over New England. You could see the uh, smoke as it layered over New York and D.C. And you can see that dividing line, actually, which was interesting, where the uh, I think it was a low pressure system with the, the rain in uh, New England was kind of keeping the wildfires south of them, that smoke south of them. Uh, so I think the realization that we live on a dynamic Earth is really what is the civilization we're coming to grips with. All right, we got to wrap it up there. No floating mic, but that's okay because we got a lot of interesting uh, info and perspective from you up there in the International Space Station. Stephen Bowen, live from that space station. Thank you so much. Fascinating. And I'm just like in awe that we're able to even connect with him 250 miles above our Amazing stuff. Stephen, thank you. Oh, floating mic. There it is. There it is. You did it for us. Yay. This is your happiness. Yes. This is your happiness. I'm done for the day. All right, well, back here on Earth, or really. On grass, on Earth, American Chris Eubanks will take the court again in just a couple of hours with a chance to extend his incredible Wimbledon run. On the line, a shot at the semifinals on tennis's grandest stage. Now, the 27-year-old Eubanks, who was toiling in tennis's minor leagues, to some degree obscurity only months ago, stunned fans by beating world number five Stefano Tsitsipas on Monday. That win guaranteed him $439,000 of prize money, raising his career total by more than 20%. Now he faces world number three, Daniil Medvedev. Here's what, he's, what the Russians said about Eubanks ahead of their match. Here he's on fire again. He just won an ATP, uh, his first title. And here in the quarters, beating uh, Stefanos, five sets. Uh, unbelievable. So I, I know that I need to be at my 100% and absolute best uh, physically, tennis-wise and mentally to try to beat him. Well, joining us now, because he had so much fun yesterday, and we did too, so we absolutely had yeah. to bring him back, <laughs> Tennis Hall of Famer and Eurosports tennis commentator, Mats Wielander. Uh, I, wa I want to start with, um, look, as somebody who won seven Grand Slam singles titles in his career, this moment for Eubanks, we talked a lot about the mental element of this right now. Clearly, he kind of has flipped the switch to some degree. How does he hold on to that going into this grand stage? Yeah, thanks for having me again, guys. Um, I think you can because I remember, and I was much younger when I reached my first quarterfinals at the French Open in uh, 1982. I was only 17 years old, but I think that's irrelevant. You're heading into the unknown, so you always get the question, weren't you nervous? No, not at all early on because I don't know what happens if you if you win or lose in such a big stage. So I think for Chris Eubanks, I think it's the same thing. Uh, I think he's just playing another top player uh, and also the style of game. I mean, he's in control uh, of of the points most of the time because he serves uh, he has a very hard serve he's six foot seven hits the ball hard from the baseline he comes to the net so he asks his opponent a lot of questions but he also has a lot of answers but then he makes unforced errors but he is in control so i think he's he's sailing away he's not going to space but uh he is uh, uh he's <laughs> a, a very very tricky opponent now daniel medvedev is so consistent here you have a player who doesn't make mistakes he's won a grand slam uh, at the US Open. He runs better than most players, but he hasn't had great success on a grass court, so there is no advantage for him there. In fact, Eubanks, with nine matches in a row, might actually feel like he, he, uh, he has an advantage because he's got more grass court tennis, but very difficult to pick, to be honest. I bet Eubanks would say also to what you said, uh, don't underestimate me. Maybe I will be going to space. We'll see, yeah, right? Could be, could be. <laughs> All right, let's talk yes. about the... You know, I mean, look how far he's come, yeah. given to where he, he was. All right, let's talk about Ukrainian uh, Alina Svitolina. She beat the world number one ranked player to head to the semifinals. To add to that, she is a new mom. 
having just had her first child last October. That's incredible. And she spent a year away from the sport, raising money to help with the war efforts in her country. Just surprising and inspiring was this victory. Oh, I mean, it's it's so inspiring. It's completely surprising, actually, uh, because uh, she's pl playing better tennis now than she did before she had her daughter in October. Uh, and I mean, I'm guessing the mental strength comes from starting a family. So losing is not such a big deal because you come home and your daughter doesn't know that you even play tennis. And then I do think that the, the Ukrainian situation, somehow she has figured out how to use that uh, as a strength when she's playing matches. We have some other uh, Ukrainian women that, that have struggled with it uh, and can't really compartmentalize the two, but she has. Uh, and uh, Iga Schwantek, you have to put that in there too. She's done so much uh, relief work for the Ukrainian people that emotionally this match was nearly uncomfortable uh, to, to watch. And then you realize that no, these two are pros and they are just playing tennis right now. So uh, it's a Cinderella story uh, and, and she can go far. She can go further. She can win the title, Alina Sutolina. And I cannot believe that I'm saying that. Amazing. I'm, I'm pulling for her. Yeah, no question. Mats, we got like 10 seconds left, but I do have to ask yes. you. Uh, she said after the match, her preparation for the next round would involve beer. Would you suggest that as a tennis hall of famer? <laughs> Well, as a mom, I would suggest it, yeah. Uh, well, I don't know. I, I, you know, she, she, the reason she's trying so hard is because she is more relaxed when she's on the court, whatever is going on in her private life, and she's even said that. So I don't think one beer would hurt that much. Yeah, whatever she's doing is working for us. So working. Go have that Same beer with Chris Eubanks. Do whatever you're doing, guys. <laughs> yeah. We love watching it. Mats Wielander, we appreciate it, sir. Thanks so much. And in just about an hour from now, President Biden and President Zelensky will hold a bilateral sit-down. We have learned that Biden and G7 leaders will soon announce new efforts to help Ukraine in its fight. We're going to speak to National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan ahead of that announcement, so stay close. In just about an hour, President Biden and President Zelensky will hold a bilateral meeting on the sidelines of the NATO summit. And just before that meeting, President Biden and G7 leaders will announce new efforts to bolster Ukraine's military capabilities. We're going to bring you that announcement live, but it likely won't touch on Zelensky's most pressing request, an official timeline for when Ukraine can join the NATO alliance. Joining us now, National Security Advisor to President Biden, Jake Sullivan. Thank you for making time for us. I know how busy you are. Uh, so first, I want to ask you about this exchange at the NATO public forum that you had with a Ukrainian activist. It was a tense exchange, and this activist was really questioning the decision uh, by NATO, including the U.S., not to allow Ukraine into to NATO right now until after the war is over and the different reforms that the U.S. wants to see from Ukraine. Um, and you responded that, look, you, you believe that U.S. and Americans deserve more gratitude. I'm wondering, was that a preview of what the president will convey to Zelensky in the next hour? And does it just really highlight the tensions that you're kind of feeling seeing on the ground? Well, first of all, thank you for having me on and greetings from Vilnius. Uh, what I was really trying to communicate in my, in my answer to that activist was the basic reasoning for why NATO, including the United States, but really all 31 allies were not prepared to admit Ukraine at this summit into NATO. And the reason is really quite straightforward. If Ukraine were admitted to NATO today, that would mean NATO would be at war with Russia today. It would mean that the United States would be at war with Russia today. And President Biden and the other NATO leaders were not prepared to do that because they did not see that 
as a reasonable step at this point. Secondly, every member of NATO has to meet certain uh, democratic reform requirements before coming into the alliance. That's true also of Ukraine. It has made substantial progress along the reform path, and there are more steps to take. So what the alliance said with one voice last night was we look forward to a future with Ukraine and NATO. We will work with Ukraine along the pathway to NATO, but we are not prepared to invite Ukraine today. President Zelensky obviously had a different view of that. But President Biden will be straightforward today with him, as he has been in every phone conversation and meeting they've had, laying out his reasoning, laying out his thinking, and then listening carefully to what President Zelensky has to say. Jake, I think one of the frustrations from the Ukrainian side has not been they understand the conflict uh, piece of that. Uh, have you, have NATO members detailed specifically uh, the democratic and security sector reforms that would be needed, that they would need to show in order to gain an invitation? Well, actually, the way this process works, it's not just NATO detailing to Ukraine specific reforms. It's Ukraine working with NATO on what's called an annual national program. That sounds like kind of bureaucratic, but what it fundamentally means is that Ukraine has a plan that it has authored for the steps that it needs to take, including in security sector reform, including in democratic reform, including in anti-corruption. So that's all detailed in an existing annual national program that was referenced in the communique. Now, that uh, program gets updated. And what the communique says is that NATO and Ukraine will work together on a set of priority reforms to put a spe special emphasis on moving quickly in certain areas uh, to improve the resilience of Ukraine's democracy. But that will be a joint effort between NATO and Ukraine, and that's well built into the process of obtaining membership in NATO. I want to ask you, because I think it seems like part of the frustration on Ukrainians' part and Zelensky's part is also just the ambiguity of after the war. I mean, what does that look like? When will that be? You know, some say, look, this war is never going to end. Russia's never going to stop. Russia's been attacking Ukraine, annexing Crimea years ago. Um, they're, they're not going to stop. They're just going to continue. What does the end game look like in your view? What does that timeline look like? I mean, we're, we're more than 500 days in now. Look, I well understand Ukraine's desire to be in NATO as fast as possible. That is absolutely their right to seek admission and to press for it and to advocate for it as President Zelensky has done. But every NATO ally, including the United States, needs to look squarely at the fact that admission to Ukraine into NATO at this juncture means war with Russia. That is an inescapable fact. Now, you ask a fair question. So do we have to wait until a certain time or day relative to the war to certain conditions on the ground have to obtain. We didn't put a mechanical formula down because war is dynamic. The situation is dynamic. And NATO needs to be able to retain the flexibility, working closely with Ukraine on its pathway to make a determination about when down the road it makes sense to admit them. And in the meantime, we're not just sitting around. We are providing an unbelievable amount of weaponry and military assistance to Ukraine. And today, the G7, led by President Biden, will stand up with President Zelensky to announce we're prepared to provide that security assistance long out into the future and certainly uh, for the duration of the period while Ukraine is working its way on the pathway towards NATO. Uh, Jake, I do want to ask before we let you go, um, 
Do you believe that by the end of today, I think Senator Menendez, the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, is having a, a pretty consequential meeting with a, a Greek representative. Do you believe by the end of the day, Menendez will be on board with sending F-16s to Turkey? I will leave that to Senator Menendez. All I can say is that President Biden has been clear about his view that those F-16s should be transferred. It's in our interest. It's in the NATO alliance's interest uh, that Turkey get those planes. Uh, but we want to do that carefully and in consultation with the Congress. And Senator Menendez has an important voice in this. So we will continue to stay in close touch with him. Quickly, before we let you go, there was a dinner with NATO leaders. President Biden decided to skip that. The explanation was he had a busy schedule. They're NATO leaders. They had a busy schedule, too. Why did he skip the dinner? Well, President Biden has spent, uh, I mean, literally countless hours with NATO leaders uh, over the course of the period since this war began, multiple NATO summits, including a whole day yesterday, including a whole day today. Uh, so last night, uh, he wasn't the only leader who wasn't there, but uh, last night he thought uh, he didn't have to attend and that he would have every opportunity to sit with all of his colleagues at length on all of the significant issues of our time. And not just to sit with them, but frankly to lead, because it has been President Biden who has driven the unity, the purpose the forcefulness of this alliance over the last 17 months. And it is President Biden who has led the world in rallying a response to uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So um, his uh, ability to galvanize and persuade and organize the entire alliance to a point where it is more unified and more determined and more decisive than at any point in NATO's history. It's also larger than at any point in NATO's history with the admission of Finland and Sweden. Uh, that's President Biden's legacy when it comes to NATO, and it's one that he can be very proud of. All right, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, this is the first foreign trip I've missed from this administration, and based on my views of Vilnius, I think I made a terrible mistake. Um, Jake, <laughs> we appreciate the time, man. Clearly having FOMO. Well, overnight, Iowa Republicans passing a bill banning most abortions after six weeks. Plus, more than a dozen homes in Southern California have been evacuated because of landslides. What officials say is causing the ground to move. We only have like 20 minutes uh, when I saw the fire chief. So that was not enough to, to retrieve a whole life of memory. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. New overnight, the Iowa State Legislature passed a ban on most abortions as early as six weeks into pregnancy. Demonstrators representing both sides of the abortion rights debate packed the state house. The bill includes exceptions for miscarriages when the life of the pregnant woman is threatened and fetal abnormalities that would result in death. There are also exceptions for rape reported within 45 days and incest reported within 140 days. Now, Governor Reynolds says she intends to sign the bill Friday, at which point the ban would immediately go into effect. And this would put Iowa with a growing list of states limiting or outright banning the procedure. And in California, more homes have been evacuated, Los Angeles County specifically, after the ground shifted, causing a landslide and extensive damage. Twelve homes were evacuated in Rolling Hills on Saturday. Now, a break in a sewer main has forced the evacuation of another five homes, bringing the total number to 17. The cause of the landslide remains unclear, but some believe excessive rainfall after a drought created a ground fissure, causing the ground to shift. And ahead, we are getting ready to hear from Presidents Biden and Zelensky at the NATO summit. Our live coverage continues next.
Good Wednesday morning, everyone. Pamela Brown back with me. Great Very busy here. Newsday, a lot going on, but most notably, a critical NATO summit is in its final day. President Biden is about to meet one-on-one -on -one with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. We'll take you live to Lithuania and break down all of the big developments. And we are now learning which GOP presidential candidates we might see on the debate stage next month. We're gonna to talk to one hopeful who is fighting to make the cut. And we're about to find out if inflation cooled off or heated up in the US the last month this hour of CNN This Morning starts right now. And it is an important hour this hour. Yes. President Biden will be set to meet one-on-one -on -one with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky as the high-stakes NATO summit in Lithuania comes to a close. Now, Zelensky has been meeting face-to-face -face with NATO leaders throughout the course of the day as he pleads for more weapons and, of course, an invitation to join the alliance. Now, President Biden has been clear that Russia's brutal war needs to end before Ukraine can join NATO. Well, Zelensky has been openly frustrated with NATO for not giving a clear timeline of when Ukraine can join. A short time ago, he thanked the allies for pledging new weapons packages, but he did not relent on joining NATO. I would like to have a success on this summit for everyone, for our soldiers, for our citizens, for our children, for everyone. We can state that the results of the summit are good, but should we receive an invitation, they would be the, the optimum. CNN White House correspondent Arlette Sines is in Vilnius, Lithuania. Arlette, we're expecting a major announcement from Biden, Zelensky and G7 leaders later this hour. Tell us more. Yeah, Pamela. Well, President Biden and Ukrainian President Zelensky will be sitting down for a face-to-face -face meeting, hoping to put some of those differences regarding uh, that path for Ukraine's entry into NATO behind them and focus on what the U.S. and allies are able to provide for Ukraine in the here and now and also long-term down the road. Uh, the U.S., along with G7 allies, are set to announce a series of security commitments that they can try to offer Ukraine uh, to really try to help them defend themselves, not just in the short term, but also in the long term. And officials here say that they are hoping to send a direct message to Russia. And that is what so much of this summit has been about, uh, be it uh, trying to rally more support, more aid for Ukraine, but also the expansion of the NATO alliance that we've seen uh, right here on the ground in Vilnius after Turkey relented on their objections to Sweden uh, entering the NATO alliance. But really all eyes will be on this meeting, these conversations between President Biden and Zelensky in just a few hours. The first time the two men will be sitting down face to face since May. And uh, officials acknowledge that they do expect some of these differences that we've heard over the course of the summit uh, to be talked about in this meeting. Uh, they, uh, you just heard a little while ago, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan telling you guys uh, that the president plans to be straightforward and explain his reasoning, but also think uh, and also listen to what uh, Zelensky has to say on this matter. But what officials have really been trying to stress is that the U.S. is trying to offer long-term support to Ukraine, trying to formalize that perhaps in, in this announcement that's coming in the next hour, uh, so that, that even though Zelensky is not getting exactly what he wants with the timeline towards NATO membership, he is getting further assistance and commitment by the United States to help them in the future. Our let's signs live for us in Lithuania. Stay with us. And let's bring in CNN senior national security correspondent Alex Markhard, who is in Kyiv. 
Ukraine right now. And here with us on set, retired Major General Spider Marks and CNN White House correspondent Jeremy Diamond. Jeremy, I want to start with you. Arlette did a nice job laying out um, this upcoming meeting between Zelensky and Biden. Um, clearly, the tensions have been out there in the open. Zelensky, Zelensky made clear that he is not so happy with not having the invite and not having a timeline of when an invite could come to join NATO. What message do you think President Biden uh, will send in this meeting? Well, I think there's going to be two messages. There's going to be the public-facing message, and then there's going to be the private message behind the scenes. And, and, and those two things are distinct, and they are both equally important. Publicly, the president is going to signal U.S.'s long-term commitment to Ukraine security. We're expecting a new security assistance package today, long-term security assistance for Ukraine alongside G7 allies, uh, but then there's also, go or NATO allies rather, but there's also going to be the private part of this meeting where the president is really going to go into explaining his thinking on NATO and why he didn't feel the time was right now uh, for uh, Ukraine to join the alliance. And what we also can see, as we saw with Jake Sullivan's response to that Ukrainian activist, you see that there are some private frustrations and those have existed since the beginning between the Ukrainians uh, and the United States. But one thing I can tell you is that, you know, when President Biden speaks with Zelensky, those conversations can sometimes be frustrating. But at the end of those calls, I've been told that the president says, you know what, if I were in his position, I would be doing the exact same thing. Yeah, yeah it's a really good point. Uh, Alex, you know, on the ground in Kiev, I think one of the things that uh, is important to some degree to point out is, is there was no expectation when you talked to White House officials or other uh, NATO allies that there would be an invitation coming out of Vilnius. And I, I would imagine President Zelensky and his team knew that as well. What they are getting, however... Uh, is a very significant near-term defense assistance package from a series of NATO allies, but also the longer-term kind of umbrella-type dynamic that's being put in place on a bilateral basis. Do they view that as, if not an invitation, at least this, this will be helpful in the near term, or is it just frustration at this point? I think it's both, Phil. I mean, they're certainly taking some comfort in the extremely robust uh, support that they are being offered today and that they're still going to be offered today uh, by the U.S. and other allies. But President Zelensky has said to CNN in the days leading up to this summit that he wasn't going uh, to uh, to this NATO summit for fun. Uh, he was expecting concrete outcomes. He wanted an invitation uh, right away. And it is clear that that concrete timeline of how and when uh, Ukraine can be uh, can expect to join NATO uh, is not uh, coming imminently. Zelensky certainly uh, is going to be going into uh, this meeting with Biden, I think, in, in a more conciliatory fashion than we have heard from him in the past few days when it became clear that this invitation was not going to be coming. He tweeted a, a, a very aggressive message uh, saying that it was unprecedented and absurd that there was no timeline. And then earlier today, we did see him speaking alongside the Secretary General uh, Jens Stoltenberg, saying that when he does sit down with Biden, uh, that he is going to be thankful. He's going to thank Biden. He's going to thank Congress. He's going to thank uh, the American people for the very considerable level of support that we have seen from the U.S. over the past 17 months. Uh, we heard Jake Sullivan earlier today bristling at that Ukrainian activist saying that the American people deserve uh, a level of gratitude for these billions of dollars in weapons that have been sent to Ukraine. So I think you will see uh, some of that tone. But uh, again, Zelensky will be explaining uh, the needs that they still have. Uh, Long-range weapons was something that he mentioned he would certainly be bringing up in, in that meeting. We have now very notably seen the French joining the British in sending these very long-range missiles. The U.S. 
still a, a holdout on that front. Uh, so while Zelensky recognizes he's not going to get this invitation to NATO right away, he's going to be focusing on both the short and the long term. And the U.S. Uh, really going to say saying that we are going to be supporting you uh, with weapons right now for this fight, but also for a future military and explaining why now is not the time for Ukraine to be joining NATO. Guys. And I think I'm going to bring you in, uh, General Marks, because um, we heard this from David Sanger just earlier in the show that, you know, look, there's this question of what does the end game look like? I mean, we say, OK, they can join after the war is over. What does that actually look like? They haven't even really um, in earnest talk, been talking about like peace negotiations and so forth, because, as he said, they want to wait to see how this Ukrainian counteroffensive goes. But I think that's a real, real question. Right. It's nebulous. It's it's uncertain. I mean, I don't think anyone thinks Russia is just going to pull out without. Yeah. Well, that won't happen. You're exactly yeah. correct. Yeah. There right. is no off-ramp that Putin sees right now that he has to take. Look, this war is going to continue in some state for the very near future. Um, there is no, there's not going to be one discernible victor. There's not going to be a big parade at the end of this thing. And I think there needs to be the recognition that 20% of Ukraine has been lost to Russia. Is, is Ukraine in a position to reclaim that? And the answer is no. We're going to see the counteroffensive. It's ongoing right now. There's very cautious action taking place on the ground. But bear in mind, over the course of the last six months, Russia has been able to put a defense in depth. And the defense is the most difficult thing for a military guy to attack into and through. So no magic's going to occur on the battlefield. And the only way that Ukraine would be able to isolate Russian forces, give them an incentive to leave, is if they could isolate, they could tie some tactical victories together, create what's called operational maneuver and operational success, and then Russia would be isolated. Ukraine could continue to slaughter. I hate to use the term, but that's what needs to take place on these battlefields. That would need a heck of a lot more than what Ukraine has right now. And what Ukraine has not been able to do is, and they've done magnificently, so let's just put that out there. And we, we think Zelensky is a, Churchillian in terms of his leadership. But Ukraine has to be able to create this three-dimensional battlefield. They've not been able to do it. All right. Thank you for that perspective. We appreciate it. We're going to just stay tuned to this upcoming meeting with Zelensky and Biden. So stick around. Expecting them to speak this hour, we're going to bring it to you live. All right. Well, let's bring in Congresswoman Madeline Dean of Pennsylvania. She's a member of the House Foreign Affairs Committee. She's also a member of the House Judiciary Committee, which means you're going to have a busy and perhaps arduous morning at some point. Very big hearing going on over there. But I do want to start uh, on the foreign policy side of things. When you take a look at what has transpired in Vilnius over the course of the last several days, how do you feel like the NATO alliance is coming out of this? I feel like it's coming out very strong. Uh, I think about it and the conversations that are going on, the progress that has been made in the support of Ukraine, the robust support of Ukraine, and how indispensable the United States and this administration have been in summoning the support of so many nations, uh, whether it's through sanctions or munitions uh, and other humanitarian aid. Uh, so while I can imagine that it's extraordinarily frustrating for President Zelensky not to have a roadmap and a calendar and a timeline or an invitation, uh, I think it's understandable why uh, we wouldn't want to invite now uh, into NATO um, as NATO is growing and becoming more robust uh, and more unified uh, because of Article 5. We know all about that, that an attack on one is an attack on all. So what I hope is that we will do everything in our power to make Ukraine successful, uh, to win this war sooner rather than later, uh, and then a, a clear path 
uh, for Ukraine to join NATO. I have a lot of Ukrainian Americans in my district, right. uh, and that is what they want. Many of them want. Well, you as a uh, member of the House, you're going to have a role in ensuring or whether or not that's possible in terms of resources going forward. Almost certainly there is going to be new funding that is necessary uh, probably by the end of this fiscal year. Um, it is a very different House of Representatives than it was when the last major funding package was passed. Uh, what do you think the chances are that a significant funding package for Ukraine could get through in a supplemental? I believe it will happen. Uh, I think it's essential. What happens in Ukraine matters to what happens around the world. We know that uh, what Russia has done is a series of war crimes uh, in invading, attacking, and slaughtering uh, Ukrainians and destroying property, of course. Uh, but uh, as uh, China is watching what happens, uh, we cannot let um, Ukraine fail. Ukraine must succeed and think of the courage of, of the people and the president there. Uh, we have to pass a, a, a strong supplemental over and over again until this is done. I know there are factions in the Republican caucus uh, that are noisy and are questioning uh, and, and are actually saying very irresponsible things around support for Ukraine right. uh, and the operations that are going on there. Uh, but they are a minority, and I believe they will be drowned out. I think one of the reasons I asked the question, and again, I feel like to some degree it's been overstated at times in terms of the resistance and the scale of it. Um, but it does have voices that are listened to, particularly inside the Speaker's office. And part of the reason I ask, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene had an amendment to the National Defense Authorization Act, which is moving right now, that would have pulled the U.S. out of NATO. And I think to some degree you kind of chuckle or think that's kind of crazy, except she's a prominent figure inside the conference, Think of how irresponsible that kind of an amendment is. Think of how irresponsible it was when she said that this is a proxy war uh, the United States is waging. Uh, she is uh, someone who really doesn't understand the Constitution, her oath of office, uh, just likes to uh, throw bombs uh, and uh, raise money from that. Uh, I hope she will be more and more isolated in her conference. Uh, and I call upon Speaker McCarthy to do just that. Um, I, I do want to ask you before we let you go, you are on the Judiciary Committee. Uh, FBI Director Christopher Wray does uh, testify in about an hour and 45 minutes. Um, we were talking earlier on the show that, you know, there is kind of the show horse workhorse mentality in a committee hearing where there's a lot of people who are doing it for their YouTube clips that they can send back home. And then there's the, the substance of things that members on both sides of the aisle will get into. Um, are you concerned that this will entail no substance and will just turn into a political food fight, as these often do? They often do, but I have found that in this new majority with uh, Chairman Jordan, uh, they have been very ineffective in the circus that they like to uh, bring oh, to so. town. Uh, take a look at some of the hearings we have had. They have not gotten from their witnesses the stuff they want to get, which is that President Trump has been treated unfairly. Uh, what I would say is uh, President Trump has been treated unfairly fair. Uh, what has happened in terms of uh, oversight and, for example, Mar-a-Lago, uh, it took 18 months, 19 months in order to get the documents back uh, after he was asked over and over again. Uh, so I would say I would watch them today. I think they will be less effective than you think. And I'm confident that folks on our side of the aisle will take this seriously. Uh, we have a responsibility for oversight. Mr. Ray has some very important things, if you read through his testimony, to convey to us about the grave dangers around the world for our national security, for criminal activity. Uh, Congress has a role to play in oversight and also support. Think also of the irresponsible nature of some of these. We had ATF in front of us. 
Uh, and it turned out that we had people like Matt Gates saying he wanted to defund ATF. Uh, really, this show today will be about how do we cut, undercut FBI. Uh, for all those folks who ran a couple of sessions ago or a couple of election cycles ago saying Democrats want to defund the police, it turns out these are the fellows who want to defund law enforcement agencies that are essential to keeping the American people safe. Congresswoman, we appreciate your time coming in. I know you have a very busy morning. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And we will continue to keep an eye on the NATO summit in Lithuania. Also, federal regulators ordering Bank of America to pay more than $100 million to customers. We're going to explain why just ahead. And Miami Mayor, Republican presidential candidate Francis Suarez, he's here. He'll be joining us to discuss the state of the 2024 race and his push to make the debate stage. Stay with us. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Well, this morning, we're getting out first glimpse at who may be the Republican presidential debate stage in August, who might be on that stage. And the first national poll that meets the Republican National Committee's criteria is out, meeting the 1% threshold. Former President Trump, Governor Ron DeSantis, Vivek Ramaswamy, and former Vice President Mike Pence, former Governors Chris Christie and Nikki Haley, Senator Tim Scott, and former Governor Asa Hutchinson. They're going to have 1%. They'll have to make 1% in two other national polls or 1% in two national polls and 1% in two early state polls. And in addition to that, the candidates must receive donations from 40,000 individual donors. Several candidates running have not yet met that threshold in this poll, including Miami Mayor Francis Suarez, who is joining us now. Mayor, thanks for your time. So you didn't make this first poll, and your fundraising tweets suggest you're still trying to reach that 40,000 donor threshold Several candidates, they're coming up with creative ways to meet that threshold, like dishing out $20 gift cards. Do you plan on doing anything like that to get on that debate stage? I'm sure we'll get creative as well. Um, you know, I've said from the beginning that, uh, you know, I, I agree with the threshold uh, and will abide by whatever rules the Republican Party sets. Uh, I do think there should be a minimum criteria because time is valuable. I mean, just this time now with you is valuable to get my message out there. So every time I'm on television, one of the things I do is I say, look, please go on my website, www.francissuarez.com. And if you like what you hear, don't need a dollar. Uh, give me an opportunity to continue to have the conversation. I think the Republican Party has tried to set a relatively low bar, and they've tried to create a diverse uh, candidate pool uh, so that people have options. And I think that's what you would hope uh, from uh, from a, a primary process. And that's what I want to engage in. I hope that I have given an opportunity to continue the conversation so that people can see why I'm different and why I have something to offer uh, that could be exciting for, for Americans. A few weeks back, uh, you were caught off guard by a question during an interview about Uyghurs, a persecuted minority group in China. Here's the bite. Will you be talking about the Uyghurs in your campaign? What, the what? The Uyghurs. What's a Uyghur? And you gave me homework, uh, Hugh. I'll, I'll look at what, uh, what was it. What did you call it? A Weeble? The Uyghurs. You really I'll need to know about the Uyghurs, Mayor. you got to talk about it every day. I will, okay. I will. I will talk about. I will. Follow, I will search Uyghurs. I'm. I'm a good learner. I'm a fast learner. So after you said you didn't recognize the host pronunciation of Uyghurs, China is of course a central part of any presidential election. As president, how would you address the issue with this predominantly Muslim ethnic minority in China? 
Well, I was definitely caught off guard. Um, you know, I'm used to the, the Turkish pronunciation of the word, which is Uyghur, um, and it's uh, spelled phonetically and a little differently. But absolutely, I think, look, uh, you know, human rights is an issue that we have to deal with as a country. Uh, just yesterday, we had the two-year anniversary of the July 11th protests in Cuba. Uh, that's in our own hemisphere. Uh, I think the U.S. president has to address fundamental human rights abuses, whether they be religious persecution, uh, whether they be put putting people like the Uyghurs or the Uyghurs in concentration camps uh, where they're potentially shot uh, if they try to escape, where they're being indoctrinated. I mean, that should all be part of, of our foreign policy. I mean, we're giving China a trillion dollars of our wealth on a net annual basis. Uh, and I gave the key to the city the Enos Cantor Freedom, um, you know, who is a, a dissident, a former NBA player who has criticized the NBA for doing business with China uh, and, and sort of not dealing with issues like the Uyghur issue, uh, you know, in, 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 in Xi Jinping. So I, I think it's, it's important for us to call these things out. It is important for us to talk about them, not just in China, in Cuba and throughout the rest of, of the world, frankly. I'm going to ask you, because where you are right now in your home state, we're seeing record temperatures. I mean, we spoke with a CNN reporter in Miami earlier who described the extreme heat making the air drinkable and the ocean into a hot tub. Your city is not alone. More and more states are experiencing these extreme temperatures with little relief in sight. And I'm wondering what exactly would you do if you became president to combat climate change? I think you can look at what I've done. Uh, one of the things we've done in Miami is we haven't put our head in the sand and pretend like it doesn't exist. Uh, you know, hurricanes are not Republican or Democrat. Um, we have spent uh, tens of millions and we'll spend hundreds of millions of dollars on on resiliency, on upgrading our infrastructure. Uh, we actually got upgraded, believe it or not, by FEMA uh, to actually make us less risky, which means that all of our citizens in the city of Miami got a reduction of approximately 8% in their policies. So it's important for us to recognize the issue. And I think this is where a mayoral personality, when you're considering who should be the president of the United States, I was elected by 86% and reelected by 80%. I know how to bring people together, how to unify people around solving issues. In Washington, we've got very good at blaming other people, at fighting with each other, but we're not very good at solving issues. I think you have to confront these issues. You have to understand that throughout the country, not just in Miami, but across the country, we're seeing uh, these climatic events uh, that, are, that are devastating uh, in nature, uh, and we have to confront it head on as a, as, as a country. I got to ask you, um, before we let you go, Donald Trump's lawyers are asking to postpone his trial in the classified documents case potentially until after the election. They cite the election as one of the reasons, arguing it would be unfair to him and the election process. As a candidate in this race, would you want to see this trial take place before or after? You know, to be honest with you, I don't spend that much time thinking about it. Uh, I'm focused on, I'm going to be in New Hampshire uh, on Friday. I was in Iowa, uh, Cedar Rapids last week for uh, July 4th. And what people are telling me is they want to hear a coherent plan for the, their future, a coherent vision for their future that is not toxic and that is not falling into this sort of constant division. That's what they care about. They care about their children's future. Uh, whether Donald Trump gets indicted, whether he gets convicted, when the trial is, those are not things that they discuss with me. And frankly, they're not the things that I'm focusing on. I'm focusing on spending this precious time with you, trying to convince the American people that I'm an option worth getting to know more about. Okay, so let's talk about that coherent plan and how this might fit into that, that you say the voters are want. So your candidacy has played into to what some have labeled a, quote, testosterone primary. Taking a look at this tweet right here, what you recently tweeted, um, you recently told Politico that you are contemplating a shirtless advertisement 
Where does that stand? How does that help voters get to know you better? How does that fit into this coherent plan for the future that these voters want to hear? I think voters want to know that their candidate for president is someone that can handle the job. Uh, it's a very difficult job uh, right now. Uh, if, if the status quo remains, we're going to have a, a potential repeat of the 2020 election where two candidates uh, who are getting uh, very advanced in their age are going to be running against each other. And I think what people want to see, and we've seen some virality to, to, to the fact that some candidates are emphasizing the fact that they can work hard, that they uh, have the energy and the strength uh, to run this country, which is, uh, you know, the, the most difficult uh, government to run, the most difficult economy to run in the world. Uh, and I think that's important for people to know. I think people, uh, you know, listen, in, in a campaign that's as long as this is, as you can imagine, there are things that you do that are kind of fun, that are kind of in jest, tongue in cheek, uh, and that are meant to sort of uh, provoke discussion and, and conversation. So uh, I think that was one of those tweets. All right. We have to leave it there. Mayor Francis Suarez, thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for the opportunity. Well, in just moments, President Biden and President Zelensky will meet on the sidelines of the NATO summit in Lithuania. We'll take you there live. Plus. An all-timer, a jury has made a decision on the validity of Aretha Franklin's handwritten will that was discovered in her couch. Well, as you're getting your morning started, here are five things you absolutely have to know. Happening in just moments, Ukrainian President Zelensky will meet with President Biden at the NATO summit. Mr. Biden has said Ukraine is not ready for NATO membership, but he did recently decide to send cluster munitions to the country. North Korea firing an intercontinental ballistic missile this morning, just days after threatening to shoot down what it called U.S. spy planes near its territory. The U.S. denies the allegations and says its military protocols follow international law. And happening in just about 90 minutes, FBI Director Christopher Wray is set to testify in what's expected to be a very contentious hearing before the House Judiciary Committee. Wray will face questions from Republicans who've said the FBI has become politicized. Cleanup efforts beginning across the Northeast as receding waters from devastating floods reveal washed out roads and destroyed homes. President Biden approving an emergency declaration for Vermont. And a jury in Michigan is ruling that a handwritten will by Aretha Franklin is valid. Franklin's niece discovered the will underneath a couch cushion. The ruling is a victory for two of Franklin's four sons who say this will, dated 2014, should override a 2010 will that was found in a locked cabinet in Franklin's home. Well, that's five things you need to know this morning. More on these stories all day long on CNN and CNN.com. And don't forget to download the Five Things podcast every morning. You download Right. Of course, yeah. Bobby. Have to, have to. All right. New and very important this morning, China-based hackers are behind a widespread hack that includes U.S. government email accounts. That's according to the White House and Microsoft. Now, the breach affected accounts at two dozen organizations, including some U.S. government agencies. U.S. officials and Microsoft have been quietly scrambling for weeks to assess the impact and contain the fallout. CNN's Sean Lingas joins us now. And Sean, I think the immediate question I have is what agency... Uh, did this actually start with? And what's the overall scale of this? Well, I'm glad you asked what agency, Phil. As I was on the way over here. I heard from a source that Patient Zero, the first agency to detect this and to report it back to Microsoft, was the State Department. So yeah. um, that makes sense from an espionage perspective that the Chinese hackers would go after potentially high-ranking officials at the State Department to try to comb some of their emails for intelligence. 
Um, I believe CNN was first to report that. And it's one of several agencies that we think have been hit by this. Um, it seems to be a very targeted uh, espionage campaign. They're not trying to sweep up random people's communications. It seems to be high-level people uh, with, that, that the Chinese government would be interested in, Phil. Is that rare? No, it's quite common. It's, uh, so it's not always a broad kind of let's collect everything they try and go after. Oh, and this, yeah, the targeted uh, aspect of it is, is pretty common because, um, you know, there's certain secrets that they're after that um, only certain people in the U.S. government are going to have. And um, hopefully people are smart enough not to necessarily put those secrets in an email. That's my next question. <laughs> uh, this, is, this is an unclassified system. But uh, as you know, you can gather a lot from what people put in emails, their movements, uh, who they're talking to. Uh, you know, this is why journalists uh, FOIA things and get an answer three years later. But uh, <laughs> Beijing can get an answer quicker if they have it, you know, align into the email system of the State Department or others. Uh, so this is a very much a developing situation. I would also add that um, the White House in their on the record statement last night to CNN and others, um, you could tell there was a little bit of uh, undercurrent of frustration with the fact that um, they had to report this to Microsoft rather than vice versa. The Biden administration has been pushing agencies, I'm sorry, companies, software uh, providers uh, to improve their security, to get a better handle on when these vulnerabilities are being exploited by hackers. Uh, now, Microsoft is the most popular software company in the world. They literally have, I don't know, a billion users. They have, they have numerous, numerous users. So they have a, a very wide attack surface, and that's why they're often targeted. It's, ironically, in the first few months of the Biden administration, it was alleged Chinese hackers that hit micro, a different Microsoft software, and that caused a big hoopla in the administration. So uh, there's a, a bit of a less patience here for this kind of vulnerability uh, to go unnoticed. Phil. All right. Sean Lin, Gus, thank you. Really Good important night, reporting. Morning. Yeah, reporting. barely any Appreciate sleep it. in this one. Happy to do it. Bring you the reporting. And this just in a key inflation report has just been released. We're going to bring those numbers up next. Plus, we're standing by in Lithuania, where President Biden and President Zelensky are set to speak just moments from now. Stay with us. We've got fresh economic data, which makes me about as happy as Pamela was talking to the space station earlier. <laughs> a key inflation report out just moments ago. CNN business correspondent Rahel Solomon joins us now. Rahel, give it to me. I don't have it in my hands. No. I need you to walk me through this. I can't tell if you're being sarcastic or not, but I'm going to assume that you serious. Were being, you were being serious. Yes, cooling and better than expected. Phil and Pamela, that is the headline from this report. And if you take a look at U.S. futures, you get a sense of what the reaction is on Wall Street. Dow futures popped about 200 points uh, just after this cross. So 3%, the index increasing 3% on an annual basis. That is better than expected. And month over month, prices increased 0.2%. That is better than expected. Core inflation, a bit of a different story. So core inflation, guys, this is when you strip away categories like energy and food. And it gives us a better sense of underlying inflation. Uh, that index increasing 4.8%. So why is this happening? Well, if you look at this chart here, you see that peak there? That's 9.1% in June of last year. So when you're comparing price levels now to price levels then, you can understand uh, that it, it is a smaller increase, right? And so you see a lower figure now. Also got some help in categories on a monthly basis, like airline fares, they went down, used cars, those prices went down, and household furniture. Now, on an annual basis, gasoline. Take a look at this. Remember last year when prices were like $5 a gallon? Well, gasoline prices have come down a lot. Food prices, not so much. Shelter prices, not so much. What does this mean for the Fed? When the Fed meets in two weeks, to put this in context, guys, 
we still expect them to raise rates, even with reports like this. And the reason why is because, remember, their inflation target is 2%. So even with 3% on a headline basis, even with 4.8% on a core basis, we're still pretty far from their target. I want to ask you about this other story out there in the business world. Bank of America being forced to pay $200 million in fines over accusations they double-dipped fees, withheld credit card rewards, and opened accounts without consent. What should consumers know? Yeah, so this is the nation's second largest bank. Federal regulators say that this took place over several years, affected hundreds of thousands of consumers, even hurt the credit scores of some people. So what you should know is the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau says if you feel like Bank of America should owe you money because of those allegations, the onus is actually on them. They should be reaching out to you. The agency did, however, say they're going to put on its website later this month a Bank of America point person so you can reach out if you have questions or if you want to proactively find out. I should say, though, that Bank of America said for its part in an email to CNN that we voluntarily reduced overdraft fees and eliminated all non-sufficient fund fees in the first half of 2022. As a result of these industry-leading changes, revenue from these fees has dropped more than 90 percent. But again, the agency saying if you think the bank owes you money, they should be reaching out to you. If not, they're going to post on their website a point person so you can reach out to them. All right, Rahel Solomon, I never joke or I'm sarcastic about economic data. Okay, Phil Mattingly. Appreciate it. Thanks, Rahel. Well, in just a few minutes from now, President Biden and President Zelensky will hold a bilateral meeting. Arlette Sines back with us from Lithuania. Arlette, what are we expecting to hear? Well, Pamela and Phil, as you both know, covering the White House, sometimes these summits can be a bit delayed. And right now we are still waiting for President Biden to appear at this event with G7 leaders. It is there where we are expecting these G7 leaders will be rolling out some long term security commitments that they can each make to Ukraine as they're trying to hope to uh, provide Ukraine with the ability to defend themselves, but also deter possible future attacks. Now, this comes as there had been quite a bit of tension heading into this summit about the idea of Ukraine uh, looking for a pathway to membership within NATO. Ultimately, that is not something that the leaders uh, gave Zelensky a clear timeline on here at the summit. But these announcements that are coming from the U.S. and other G7 allies are expected to give uh, Zelensky something to walk away with, some assurance that allies will be there for them in the long term. Now, after this uh, event with G7 leaders, where the president is expected to speak, we will then a little bit later see President Biden and Zelensky sit down face to face. They already had a brief interaction uh, earlier today as that Ukraine NATO Council came together. Uh, that was the first time the two men interacted during the summit. But as they sit down, uh, it could give them an opportunity to talk about the differences that they have about that pathway to membership. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan earlier today said that President B Biden uh, is plans to be very straightforward in explaining why he took the position he did at this moment. But he also wants to focus on listening to what Zelensky needs right now. The U.S., of course, has been one of Ukraine's top providers of support. And heading into this summit, the president has really been trying to show that there is strength and unity within the NATO alliance, trying to see or send a clear message uh, to Russia. So we will see President Biden uh, and Zelensky in, in just in the coming hours as the two men sit down face to face here at the summit. All right. Thank you so much, Arlette. Of course, we are keeping a close eye on this. Our live coverage continues up next. In just a few minutes, President Biden and President Zelensky will hold a bilateral meeting. Let's bring back retired Major General Spider Marks and CNN White House correspondent Jeremy Diamond. I'm curious, what are you 
thinking the takeaway will be from this meeting? What are you hoping to hear? Well, I'd love to, I'd love to see the United States and NATO come together and say, look to President Zelensky, you are very much a part of our future. You have some heavy lifting, some incredible heavy lifting that you've been doing and you need to continue to do before we can get you onto a path to join NATO. You're not going to join NATO now. That's just not going to happen. Their infrastructure has collapsed. They've had a migration over millions of people. These are the intellects. These are the ones that have money and have mobil intellectual mobility and the freedom. And they've departed Ukraine, whether they're the right people or not, but they've departed Ukraine. Are they, are they going to come back and invest in this rebuild? Nobody knows that. Their economy is in the tubes. So is Ukraine ready to be a fulsome member of NATO? The answer to the question is, if you go through the checklist, you go, no, they're not. Jeremy, I'm interested, when you talk to White House officials, when you talk to folks over at the NSC, there is an ongoing counteroffensive, and it might still be at its early stages, they might still be probing at this point in time, but it has been hard going, and I don't think anybody denies that. Um, Ukrainians acknowledge that as well. Uh, have they seen anything from the White House perspective that gives them optimism that perhaps there could be a major breakthrough or there could be a substantial shift in the dynamics that we've seen over the course of the last several months? Not, not as of yet, but I think that this White House is willing to be patient with the Ukrainians and understanding that the Ukrainians are following a deliberate strategy with this counteroffensive and they're not going to be knocked off that strategy by events that may pop up here and there. Um, so, so there is hope within the White House that this uh, counteroffensive can make some progress and there's also an understanding that it hasn't made the progress that it has yet, which is why part of why we have seen these cluster munitions get sent out uh, to the Ukrainians, that package approved earlier this week. And, and also just a general concern about running low on ammunition, which is certainly something that the Ukrainians are dealing with and something that the White House is trying to, to backfill here. So I think they're optimistic about the prospects of the counteroffensive, but they're also realistic about it. They're going to do what they can to help. But to the general's point, I mean... You know, the, the Ukrainians are always going to say this isn't enough. This isn't fast enough. And, and that is ultimately at the center of some of the frustrations between the White House and, and the Ukrainians is this notion that Zelensky is always going to take a maximalist position. He's going to say, I need 120 percent, hoping that he gets 60 percent. And in some ways, it, it's a strategy that's worked. You know, Ukraine may not think this summit's a success because they're not a member of NATO. But does the White House view it as a success? You know, What's interesting is going into these summits, as you guys know, so often White House officials know exactly how these summits are going to go. They know what the deliverables are going to be. They know what the agreements on the table are going to be. In this case, they really weren't sure as of last week whether or not they were going to get Sweden into NATO uh, uh, during this summit. And so that is certainly a, uh, a huge deliverable for the alliance. And it's also going to go into the president's message that we're going to hear in his speech today about expanding and strengthening NATO. Certainly he has this feather in his cap with Sweden now. All right, Jeremy, General Marks, we appreciate you hanging out, giving us the context. A lot more to come on this over the course of the next couple hours. Yep, CNN News Central continues our live coverage after this quick break. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.